Hello, and welcome again to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. He's still the tender-hearted prophet. He's still the prophet who feels deeply for people, but he's a different man now. Can you name a few great leaders, and what do they have in common? Chances are they've been in leadership for some time. How do I know? Because great leaders and people of influence serve faithfully over time, despite disappointment, discouragement and opposition. It's those experiences that actually shape them. The Old Testament prophet Jeremiah discovered that submitting himself to God gave him what he needed for leadership. Tonight's message from Dr. Corbett is power-packed. You don't have to be from Egypt to be Egyptian. We are about to change gears. This is, this is the, the, the part of the life of Jeremiah where I, I, want to, I want to make three really big points out of this section here because Jerusalem's been destroyed. Jeremiah, in one sense, this was what he was told would happen, sort of. If you cast your mind back to the opening chapter of Jeremiah, we read these words. I've called you to speak to nations. Hmm. I've called you to speak to kings and nations and you will be used by me to uproot and to tear down and destroy. But then I'll use you to build and to plant and to make strong. This is the opening chapter. And yet the next 45 chapters or so is Jeremiah speaking largely in one city to one group of people and in one sense he was a failure but really we know he wasn't and we'll see why he wasn't and it has to do with the fact that he remained faithful and I want to put that word faithful in a context for you because I hope that you will see that when we talk about someone being faithful, faithfulness is required not just in serving in the church, but faithfulness is required in your marriage. In so many other spheres, faithfulness is called for. And sometimes I wonder if we in the 21st century in Western culture have a really bankrupt understanding of what it means to be faithful. So this is where Jeremiah goes from being uh, 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 can I use the term a country hick prophet? He's just in a small, insignificant city. He's speaking to a people that in the world scheme of things, they were never a world empire. They never conquested beyond their territory. In fact, arguably, they didn't even take the territory God had assigned to them. And here, Jeremiah is speaking to not the entire nation of Israel because half of the nation's been disintegrated. It's gone. He's speaking to essentially what is two tribes of the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. And he's speaking in a city that perhaps we would put on a, a scale that's not much bigger than some of the towns we would see on the east side of the Tamar. And here he is. He's faithfully served there for the past 50 or so years. And he's no longer Jeremiah the weeping prophet. This is a boy who's now grown into a man. And I've got to tell you, I think he's one of the most impressive men at this stage of his life. He's one of the most impressive men in all of scripture, if not, who've ever walked the planet. He's now Jeremiah the prophet to the nations. And how do I know that? Well, we'll see in a moment how I know that. And this, this first section is intriguing because 
what I, one of the points I want to make out of this section is what it means to be Egyptian. And here I'm going to say you don't have to be from Egypt to be an Egyptian. And I'll explain that a bit later on so that you understand what I mean by that. You don't have to be from Egypt to be an Egyptian. And the overall theme of this chapter is there is no salvation in Egypt. Salvation is that thing that every human looks for. We look for that point of fulfillment. We look for that point of satisfaction. We look for that why to be answered every Monday morning when we've got to get out of bed. We all want to know, why should I? And salvation gives you that worldview. It gives you the reason, the raison d'etre, the reason to get out of bed and to live. It gives you a sense of, I am on this planet for a purpose. It takes you from gloom and puts you into a sense of glory. It takes you from despair and gives you a dream. Salvation changes you from the inside out and it affects everything you are and everything you do. And in Egypt, there's none of that, even though that's what they promised. Here's how I know he became a prophet to the nations because of Jeremiah 46, verse 1. It says this, The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the nations. So it's at this point that we say goodbye. Goodbye to the old Jeremiah. And the Jeremiah that we say goodbye to, he was a reluctant. Remember the opening chapters up to chapter 12? He was always complaining. I don't want to do this, God. It's too hard. He was perhaps 13, 14 years of age when God called him. And he was always reluctant to obey. He was weak. Whenever he was insulted, he collapsed. He went into what I suppose psychologists would call depression. And here, this Jeremiah that we're introduced to now is not like that. He's now, and I, if you'll excuse the alliteration, I was looking for words that begin with S. He's strong. He's secure. He's surrendered to God. He's spiritual. He's steadfast. He's stable. And he's steely. These are the attributes of a man. Every man should aspire, I think, to these characteristics. And Jeremiah is it. He has got there. It's quite remarkable what we see in his life. How did he get there? And here's where I mentioned this word before, through a lifetime of faithfulness. But note the context, and this is why I want to give you a context for the word faithful. See, it's easy to be faithful when things are easy. But that's not really faithful. That's just full. To be faithful is to believe and to be full of belief and trust and to act on it. In fact, in the Hebrew, there is no Hebrew word for faith. The, the word that's translated into English as faith in the Hebrew is the word faithful. It means when you're faithful, it means that whatever you say you believe, you act on it. That's what it means to be faithful. But faithful must have a context. And the context is this. When it's uncomfortable, when it's very discouraging, and when you've got lots of opposition. Jeremiah was someone who had proven a lifetime of faithfulness in the midst of tremendous discomfort. I mean, good grief, being lowered down by his feet into a cesspool, a mire, down the bottom of a well, a foot of mud that was blech. And there he is wallowing upside down in this thing, being punished by the king. 
Man, how would you respond to God? You know, many, we, we, we know how many people would respond to God. They would shake their fist at God. They would treat God like Santa Claus or treat God like the genie in the bottle that's supposed to grant them their every wish. But Jeremiah, through this, is becoming the man he was to become. Nearly all great leaders, and I've put nearly there because I just want to maybe not to overgeneralise, but I think we could just say all great leaders are people who have had to serve faithfully amidst great discouragement and opposition. This week I was impressed to hear the former uh, leadership development coach for West Point, which is America's highest military academy. And he was talking about the, the things that the, the graduates of West Point have to do to graduate. And it is just unbelievable what they have to do. If you've ever seen a documentary on what the Australian Army does to take a normal soldier and make them an SAS soldier. Has anyone ever seen the doco on, on what they have to do? It's, it's crazy. If you've ever been bushwalking with 20 kilos on your back, or as I often do, 75 kilos, I'm like... <laughs> Well, okay, it's 15, but it feels like 75. And, and yet these SAS guys have to carry, in order to just to get in, have to carry a 50-kilo pack full of metal blocks. And they have to climb over a mountain, get on the other side, and they've got 24 hours to do it. And it would take you, you know, four days just as a, a walker with 20 kilos on your back to do it. It's intense. And this is... this West Point do something very, very similar, where they make their their graduates carry a heavy weight over their head and they have to do laps all night without stopping. And they've got a certain time to do it and they've got certain laps to do. And if they don't do it, they don't graduate. And you just think, good night. And, and when this leadership coach from Stanford University, was, his name's Jim Collins, he wrote a book, Good, From Good to Great. And he, and he said this, that they do it because the military knows that out in the real world of the battlefield, they're going to have to do things far worse just to survive. And then he made this point that in life, great leaders will constantly be looking for ways to develop their faithfulness muscle. It's a staggering comment. And here we see Jeremiah, he certainly developed that. It's in the context that, that there are some people who have just become a Christian, maybe, and they've never really served in their local church and they've been kicking around for a few years and then suddenly they'll, they'll come up and I'll get an email from them and they'll say something like this, you know, God has called me to be a prophet to the nations. And you just think, strike a light, mate. That's like going from A to Z. What about B, C, D? E's not bad, should try E sometime. You know, F and so on. And this is one of the things we see in Jeremiah. Before he was a prophet to the nations, he was a prophet in his hometown. He, 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 and you're going to hear me make this point. He, wherever God had him, that's where he served faithfully. And, and I wonder how many people are looking for the big break and they don't realise that God usually gives big breaks by giving people little opportunities. This morning I was reading out of Luke 16 in my daily reading and we come to that bit where it's the parable of the manager, the steward. And I referred to this last Sunday uh, in our evening service where, where Jesus commends and this manager commends this 
this servant. And then Jesus finishes up with this statement. He who is faithful in the little things will be granted bigger things. He who is faithful with a little will be granted more. And I think that must be a principle. That must be the way God works in people's lives. If you want to do something great for God, what are the little things that he's presented to you right now? The little things. The things that no one will notice, but he will. Because all of those things Jeremiah did faithfully, utterly faithfully. So when Jeremiah's called to be a prophet to the nations, where did he begin? Right where he was. He was in Egypt. And as he's in Egypt, his first prophecy is about Egypt. I think there's a principle here too, and this is the principle that I see. There's a kind of ambition that says, I really want to care for more people. I want to help more people. I want to do more for people. I want to turn those negative situations in our society around. And I want to do that for the good of others. Oh, man, we're going to clap you on. But you know what? That is leadership. What you just said requires leadership. And the more effective you want to be in it, the greater the leader you have to become. And if you want to be a great leader with great influence, we see it in Jeremiah right here, you bloom where you are planted. Bloom where you're planted, whatever God's got before you. You may be asked by Russell, hey, uh, Russell might come up to you and go, hey, would you like to, I don't know if Russell says hey, but hey, would you like to come out and help in the kids' church? No, because I'm destined for great things. We're going to just step back a bit and think you're a dill. Because if that's, the, if that's the arrogance that you have, you just missed a huge opportunity for God to make you into something that perhaps would, would make you a great leader. Perhaps Jim might come up to you and say, hey, you know, we, we, need, we need people to help with the ushering. Could you help with the ushering? And you might go, sorry, man, I don't do that whole service thing. <laughs> Serving others, no, that's not me. I'm great. <clears throat> I don't serve. I, I just do great. I'm actually awesome. Didn't you know? Um, then you are denying yourself something very beautiful that God might want to do in your soul. What if, uh, what if and I, I said to Hayden this morning, I said, Hayden, what are you going to do if another 20 people walk in? And he looked at me like, I don't know. He didn't say that. Of course, he's a university student, so he probably already had it figured out. But I said, you know what? You could go up to the back row where Gareth and Josh and Holly are, and you could say, excuse me, guys, we've got some people that, that, that they need to sit here. Could you just move forward a bit? But how, how many of us would, if Jim came up or one of the ushers came up and said, excuse me, we've got people, we, we, rather than put more chairs out, do you mind just, cut, look, there's one, two, three, four, five seats right at the front. What if you go, I'm not moving. I've been coming to this church for weeks now. I don't move. Please don't be like that. But this is where it starts, with your attitude. And Jeremiah's attitude was, I'll just bloom where I'm planted. I'll just speak to whoever God puts in front of me and I'll do whatever it takes. Here's the next verse of this chapter where his career as a prophet to the nations begins. It was a rather short phase of his life, 
But here we are. About Egypt, he says, concerning the army of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates at Carchemish, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Now we're going back in time. We're going back some, uh, I think it's 18 years or so, roughly. And, and Jeremiah's reminding the Egyptians, you know, you didn't think your king... Pharaoh could ever be defeated. Now, here's an interesting comment by a commentator, Bible commentator. He said this The Egyptians had become so arrogant that the men used to spend so much time preening themselves, shaving their heads, putting their mascara on, making sure their bodies were well oiled. He says this, the whole culture from the king down had become effeminate. So effeminate that no man in Egypt wanted to join the army. They couldn't even raise their own army. So this commentator said they had to hire mercenaries from other nations to form the Egyptian army because all their men were so busy putting their mascara on. So this army of, of the, apparently you know, the, the best that money could buy were defeated by a nobody. Nebuchadnezzar at that time was a nobody. Now Nebuchadnezzar is not a nobody anymore. And this is what Jeremiah is reminding them of. This is what he tells the Egyptians. Prepare buckler and shield. The buckler is a little shield that goes on the hand. And then you could pick up another one. And advance for battle. In other words, you men of Egypt, you are in for the shock of your lives. Why? We go down to verse 13. The word that the Lord spoke to Jeremiah, the prophet, concerning the coming of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to strike the land of Egypt. Now, if I was an Egyptian and I heard Jeremiah, the prophet, say that, and this is a man who over 50 years had never got it wrong, and he just said that, I'd be going... Uh Uh-oh, we're in trouble. Now, if you've got one of those Bibles that the the translators, the publishers, uh, help you to understand uh, what's going on here, you'll notice the it's it's kind of we've got text, text, text. We get into chapter 46 and it's kind of indented. It's just got three or four words a line. Yeah, is your does your your Bibles do that? You know what that's telling you? Jeremiah is not just prophesying this. He's prophesying this in poetry. Do you know how hard that is? I mean, roses are red, violets are blue. Some poems rhyme, this one doesn't. You know, it's, poetry's really hard. I reckon if you can do poetry, you are really clever. Really clever, especially if it, if it makes sense. This is Hebrew poetry. This is really clever. So here's, here's what I think about when I read this. I think, you know, Jeremiah's got this really intense word. It's really intense. He's, he's just told his comrades, we are all going to be destroyed. He hasn't exactly told them how. Now he's going, oh, Egypt, just get ready. Nebuchadnezzar is coming and you're all going to be destroyed. Ah, that's the co- his colleagues can now go, oh, we're in Egypt. Yeah. We're going to be destroyed too. But you could just say that, couldn't you? But imagine thinking it through. Okay, this is what I've got to say. But this is how I can say it. And he puts it into poetic form. 
That's amazing. That tells me this. When you're sharing with your friends, it's not just what you say. It is how you say it. Here we have this going on right now where Jeremiah in poetic form... By the way, did you hear the, the, that exchange? That was an illustration of how you say things. It's not just what you say. It's how you say it. Verse 24. The daughter of Egypt shall be put to shame. This is poetry. She shall be delivered into the hand of a people from the north. And that, of course, speaks of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. So as we go through this chapter, I, I want people to understand that, firstly, Jeremiah speaking to Egypt first. That's where he was. Bloom where you planted. Don't look beyond what already God has put before. That's the first thing. Secondly, Egypt. There are two nations that particularly bothered Israel during its history. Number one was Egypt. Egypt had played significantly in being a pest to Israel. Israel had been held in captivity for some 400 years by Egypt and so on. And Egypt becomes a, a picture of what it means to be not obeying God. It, it's, it's a picture of what, what the Bible calls the world. This is where we need to understand how the Bible uses language because that word world, we could think, well, it's on, I'm on planet Earth. Surely Earth, world, same thing. No, not quite. The, the Bible used the world or worldliness to speak of living contrary to God's will, not living according to God's will. That's why that when we read, you know, you might read through Exodus and you're reading all about how Egypt and Moses and Pharaoh and the plagues and all the rest of it. Put it in the context that when they came out of Egypt, they longed to go back into Egypt because they had this, this deception that in Egypt all of their needs were met, all of their longings were satisfied, and it brought them great fulfilment. Now think about the reality. They had to crush rocks and make brick, bricks for the pyramids. This was oppressive, this was cold, this was hard. And that's the gap between what it is to be someone whose eyes are open, God has opened your eyes, and someone who's deceived by the world, deceived by sin. You see, Egypt offered, supposedly offered, all of these things, but it couldn't deliver. So it looked like paradise, but really it was oppression. Now what we see interesting in this passage is that Jeremiah in, in verse 26 as he finishes up talking about Egypt he gives a little bit of hope just a little bit of hope he, he turns and he says Egypt you're going to be destroyed you're going to be utterly be destroyed but then God is going to turn again to you and people will come and live in your land it's not just you know the way the Bible uses language is not like just you know not making a real estate statement it's saying something about the blessing and the favour of God. Now, here's what's interesting. It, it was when they were destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, it was a time of humbling. And I want you to see this principle as well. That Jeremiah says, after this time of humbling, God would turn to Egypt and favour them, perhaps in a way they'd never been favoured. Here's the verse. I will deliver them into the hand of those who seek their life, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and his officers. 
Afterward, Egypt shall be inhabited as in the days of old, declares the Lord. Now, here's the interesting thing. After this time, Egypt never again was a world power. Never again. But here's what's really interesting today. Egypt is one of the, one of the largest Muslim Arab nations. But here's what's really interesting. God is doing something in Egypt today. There are right now, by conservative estimates, 11 million Christians in Egypt now. Do you get that? 11 million. I want you to think about that number. That number is conservative, by the way. If you go and research that, you'll see I've, I've taken the conservative number. That means somewhere around 10, minimum 10% of the nation of Egypt today identify themselves as Christian. But, but added to this number, in the last 10 years, just the last 10 years, 1 million Egyptians have converted to Christianity. There are several churches in Cairo with memberships of over 10,000 people. Christian churches. In fact, about four weeks ago, we had one of them, one of Tony's students from Egypt, Cairo. He was here Sunday night. And again, that 10,000 number, I'm being conservative because he told me his church is around 25,000 members. It puts a whole new perspective on going to church. And he said, we, we just... We just preach and Muslims get saved. God is doing something in Egypt. And Jeremiah seems to hint at it. So his prophecies affect us down to our present day. Get this. What God did in Egypt, he did it because they were arrogant and they were proud. We don't need God. We don't need anyone telling us what to do. And it reminds me of this New Testament verse out of James where it says this. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud. So if you want anything from God and you're proud, you won't humble yourself, God's word says you can't have it. He opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, it says, submit yourselves to God. Submit yourselves to God. So here's what we see. Let me bring this to a close. We see in Jeremiah a young boy, reluctant, weak, easily, very thin-skinned, upset easily, very given to despondency and depression. Go through hardship and be faithful. Go through trial and be faithful. Go through discomfort and be faithful. And God puts into him one of the most essential leadership qualities, and that's the quality of grit. Grit. When it's hard, you keep going. And Jeremiah's got it. We see in Jeremiah, toward the end of his life, he's now 70-plus years of age. Here he is at this phase of his life, around 70, and he is a different man. He's a man who's secure. He's strong. He's steely. He's prepared to serve God. He's still the tender-hearted prophet. He's still the prophet who feels deeply for people. But he's a different man now. 
And why? Because he humbled himself and he let God have his way in his life. And he reached that point of utter contentment, utter fulfilment, resigned and surrendered to God. And here's my challenge to you. Will you? You see, as a Christian, it's easy to hear something like that, a challenge like that, and go, yeah, he's, he's not talking to Christians now. He's talking to people who aren't Christians. No, I'm actually talking to everyone. <laughs> and if I point at you, there's three loaded fingers back at me. I'm pointing, I'm talking to me too. This is a challenge. I want to make sure that my attitude, if I'm in the back row and I get tapped on the shoulder, hey, do you mind giving up your seat? Sure. I'll come forward, I'll, I'll stand up and people will look at me and go, ha, ha, he got asked to move. Ha, ha, ha. That's all right, I'll wear that cross for Jesus. Or, as happened on the weekend, we make a statement on Twitter and there's a barrage of some 30, 40 abusive, offensive insults. And uh, Kelly, who manages one of our Twitter accounts for the church, wrote and said, oh boy, you're copping it today. I thought, yeah, it's, it's nothing. <laughs> I've been insulted by worse people than this or better people than this. And maybe that's what you've got to go through, a bit of heat in the kitchen. So here's my question. Will you humble yourself? Will you turn to God and surrender? If God says, I will forgive you, do you get it? Do you get that you need to be forgiven? If God says, I'll restore you, do you get that you need to be restored? It was after a time of humbling that God showed his favour to Egypt. As a leader, did you need to hear that? More from Dr. Corbett next week. Podcasts and Finding Truth Matters resources, including tonight's program, You Don't Have to Be From Egypt, are available via the website findingtruthmatters.org or by contacting us at Lagana Media, PO Box 1143, Lagana, Tasmania 7277. For regular updates and special offers, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash findingtruthmatters. Dr Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to having you join us again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.